Chapter 19 of the Submarine Boys on Duty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Submarine Boys on Duty by Victor G. Durham. Chapter 19 Jack Strikes the Key to the Mystery. Down below, down, 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 croaked Bill Henderson. He pointed below with one forefinger, laughing wildly. The other, sure that the seaman had lost his mind under the crushing force of the catastrophe, felt pity for him, though the man's actions and words also helped to increase their own terror. To cap the climax, Henderson got painfully to his feet and tried to dance a jig. Now that was carrying things too far in the then state of mind of the rest of the company. Henderson, confound you, cried Captain Jack, half savagely, as he rose. Keep quiet and sit down. Act like a man, you... To emphasize his order, the young captain pushed against the seaman's breast, intent on shoving him into a seat. Just as he did so, Captain Jack paused, aghast for an instant, and then he shouted hoarsely, Friends, I've found the wrench! and that brought them all to their feet, while Bill Henderson snarled in sudden rage. "'This man has it hidden away in the inside pocket of his coat,' cried the young captain of the Pollard. "'Help me to take it away from him while we've enough life left to act.' And with another snarl, Bill Henderson crouched in the attitude of a football player to meet the impending assault. Five of them swarmed upon him from all sides. Had not all of them been near to dying from air starvation, the conflict would have been a savage one. As it was, the fight, though a relatively weak one, was as strenuous as any of the combatants could make it. Henderson, ordinarily a powerful brute, capable of fighting three or four ordinary men, still endeavored to do his very best. Back and forth they fought, rolling over each other, and every moment burning up more and more of the air that was left to them. Yet at last Captain Jack, aided by the others, succeeded in snatching the wrench from the seaman's inner pocket. "'Hold him!' cried Benson, getting weakly up, tottering over to one of the compressors. "'Give me a minute, and some strength, and I'll give us a taste of real air!' Desperately he fitted the wrench, tried to give it a sufficient turn, and could not. I'll help you, hoarsely croaked dying Hal, reaching out and getting the weight of his hands also on the wrench. Never before had either boy struggled so desperately hard for anything. At last it yielded, ever so little. There was a hiss of escaping compressed air. They got a taste of it. Oh, how nectar-like that air was! Renewed strength began to course through their arteries and to creep into their muscles. Two deep breaths apiece and then Jack and Hal succeeded in making a good turn. A moment later, they were able to make another twist, and that set the pneumatic apparatus in operation to expel the bad air through sea valves. But Bill Henderson, too, was reviving, uttering hoarse cries of rage that sounded wonderfully more powerful now. He fought his three captors to get upon his feet. There was no help for it. Captain Jack had to dart over and tap the fellow on the head with the wrench and then Bill was quiet long enough to make it possible for Mr. Farnham to hurry after a pair of the handcuffs that were part of the ship's stores. These were snapped over the seaman's wrists just before he came to. "'Now we won't have to hurt him,' muttered Jack compassionately. "'He's a maniac, poor chap. 
or he'd never have done such a thing as try to condemn us all himself included to death in the depths by asphyxiation he's a maniac sure enough commented mr farnum but how on earth did i ever get trapped into hiring such a fellow as one of the crew confound him he seemed sane enough until after we came below the surface and now sir nudged captain jack i think we'd all of us be thankful enough for a glimpse of the surface for a look at the stars a breath of real ocean breeze good enough nodded the boat builder travel right to it though all were weak and trembly from the shock of their late experience there was strength enough in their combined force to handle the pollard promptly while messrs farnum and pollard sat over the prostrate henderson handcuffed on the floor hal hurried to the engine room while captain jack climbed up into the conning tower f summers stood near the two men and their captive ready to respond to any call but henderson now that his maniacal rage had passed was sobbing quietly he seemed spent exhausted it was with a thrill that the young captain of the submarine touched the control for speed ahead from the electric equipment and then he looked at his compass finding that the boat from a northerly heading had veered around almost east as the boat went ahead softly benson put the course around to north and then he called to hal and eph to empty the diving tanks by degrees going up on even keel asked young hastings surest thing i know replied the young captain though there was not much motion all felt the boat gradually rising and then captain jack suddenly caught the greater comparative light of the night above the water next he caught sight of the blessed stars but he did not stop the work of hal and eph until the boat rode well up out of the water now come up and get the manhole open called the young skipper let's all have a notion again of how it feels to stand in the open air messrs farnum and pollard had by this time completed the captivity of bill henderson by wrapping around him and securing many and many a turn of half-inch rope as the manhole was opened captain jack stepped out taking the deck wheel the others all except the prisoner crowded out after him and thus they ran along for a mile or two under the slower electric power that crazy fellow uttered jacob farnum had some mania on his mind that we were all great sinners and that he'd save the whole lot of us by killing us under water it seems strange muttered hal for even a crazy man to have the nerve to destroy himself slowly in such a way hm. no nothing new in that line returned mr farnum what are we going to do with him sir inquired captain jack well we're not going to turn in at any of the coast towns to give him up replied the builder we'll keep right along until we join the fleet and then we'll ask the advice of some naval officer when at last all had become accustomed to the world to which they had returned hal and eph went below to turn on the gasoline power a short time later the pollard was kicking the water at an exhilarating gait of eighteen miles an hour how did it come sir that you made it eighteen miles instead of knots asked captain jack after a while why that's the basis on which gasoline engines are built replied mr farnum for that matter captain when we've had more practice with this boat we'll tune the engine up to eighteen full knots an hour in the second boat we're going to try for an assured speed of twenty-two to twenty-four knots it seems to me said jack musingly 
that the ideal submarine torpedo boat ought to have a speed of from 28 to 35 knots. Why? So that the speed of the submarine boat shall always be ahead of the speed of any battleship afloat? Again, why? Why, so that the submarine can give effective chase to a battleship? But submarines are intended only to go with fleets of their own country, or else to remain on station at or near the mouths of harbors to be defended. All well and good, argued Captain Jack, nodding. In future wars, a battleship fleet is likely to keep away from any harbor known to be defended by the enemy's submarine boats. But if a submarine torpedo boat could have speed enough to give chase to a fleeing battleship and sink when within range of the battleship's guns, yet still able to pursue underwater and destroy the battleship, that would mean the day when battleships wouldn't be any further use, wouldn't it? Undoubtedly, admitted Mr. Farnham, but you see, Captain, so far as present human ingenuity goes, a boat can't be built to sail as fast underwater as another can be made to go on the surface. But that's the problem I'm going to tackle as soon as I get our plans a little further along, murmured David Pollard eagerly. Benson is right. When we get a submarine boat that can pursue the fastest battleship on the surface or below it, then the United States, with a hundred such submarines, could defy the combined naval powers of the world. If the United States can own a large fleet of such boats, then we can control the seas of the world. No more attempts at diving were made on the trip. The horror of that last dive remained with all, safe as they now were. All the way the Pollard, though well out from shore, ran within sight of the lighthouses. Shortly before two o'clock in the morning, Captain Jack Benson, again at the deck wheel, steered in for the light at Cape Adamson. He was going at slow speed as he rounded the point and headed in for the bay. Be careful how you go, Captain, and be on the alert to obey signals, cautioned Mr. Farnham. We've got to thread our way into a perfect hornet's nest of warcraft. A dozen battleships, several cruisers, and a flotilla of torpedo boats are at anchor over yonder. It wasn't long before the searchlight of one of the battleships picked up the Pollard with its broad ray, and then from the flagship the colored lights that blazed out and faded spelled the signal, Who are you? Pollard submarine, replied the little craft's signal lights. Expected. Come in close for orders, came the signaled answer. There was something somber, grim, awesome about this great fleet of mighty fighting craft as the young captain stole his boat in among them. These craft represented much of Uncle Sam's fighting strength, a bulwark of safety to our coasts and commerce. Close up within megaphone hailing distance, Captain Jack ran his boat. The watch officer of the Columbia, the battleship that served as flagship to the fleet, stood with megaphone ready. Ahoy, Pollard! he called. Ahoy, flagship, Captain Jack answered through a megaphone. Fleet patrol boat will show you to your anchorage. Are your owners aboard? Yes, sir. Then in the morning they will hear from the admiral. One moment, sir, Captain Jack shouted back. We have aboard a maniac, a man who tried to destroy us on the trip down. He has naval discharge papers. His name? William Henderson. Henderson, wait a moment, came back from the flagship's rail. Those on the Pollard's deck saw a younger officer leave the watch officer 
and hurry away. This younger officer soon returned with a paper which he handed to the watch officer. Pollard, ahoy, came from the latter. Flagship, ahoy. William Henderson was an inmate of a naval hospital where he had been sent to be watched on a suspicion of lunacy. A few days ago he escaped. We'll take him off your hands and see he is sent back where he belongs. Thank you, flagship. The fleet patrol boat, which had been hovering near, a small cabin launch, now steamed in alongside the submarine. An ensign and four men came aboard. Captain Jack led them below, pointing out Henderson. The four sailors lifted him, carrying him up and over the side to their own boat. Now follow us, Captain, directed the ensign, and we'll lead you to your anchorage. Five minutes later the Pollard rode snugly at anchor, with all made trim and secure. But Captain Jack and his two boyfriends, despite the lateness of the hour, were in no hurry to turn in below. It was the first glimpse any of the trio had ever had of such an imposing war fleet, and all wanted to stay on deck, drinking in the glory of the sight. End of chapter 19